We live in a world with rules. Rules are important. There's no question rules are important. Some people think rules are made to be broken. Uh, usually that's kind of in that preteen, early teenage years, rules are made to be broken, but some people are rule followers. Man, if there is a rule that has been made, they will follow it to the letter. They wouldn't dream of breaking a rule. Uh, and it's interesting, in, in even just in our kids, you see different patterns at different stages of their life with regards to rule following, with regards to pushing rules to the limits, with regards to throwing rules to the ground and stomping right on top of them. We have different approaches to rules. We have different personalities when it comes to boundaries and rules. Some are irritating when it comes to rules. I have been told that I tend to be this way when I play games. Uh, I, I, before I will play a game, I read the rules cover to cover before I will play a game. I make sure I know the rules of the game. And if it's printed in the rule book, that is the way the game is supposed to be played. And I will make sure we play it that way. They made it that way. And that's the way I'm going to play it. Um, it's games have rules that we can choose to follow or not. Uh, some people want to invent their own rules. You know, I, people do this in Monopoly where they have house rules about how you should play and, you know, they put money under free parking and do that or they ignore the thing, they ignore the rule that says that if somebody doesn't buy a property, it has to go up for auction to everybody who's playing and all these different ways of kind of messing with the rules. And we can do that when we play board games uh, or card games. But some rules cannot be broken. They're not meant to be and they really can't be. Gravity is an example of that, okay? I can drop this phone a million times and every time it's going to fall. There's no way I could say, sorry, gravity, you're not gonna apply here. Phone is gonna stay right where it is. No, it's going to fall. That's what gravity does. Just because I don't wanna follow the rules doesn't mean the phone will not fall. It's just the way it is. You cannot change it. Uh, in this series, we're talking about the most impossible event in the history of the world, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. Why was that impossible? Because it contradicts the rules of nature. The way God established things, it is appointed for a man once to die. We die one time and that's it. But the rules of nature don't tell us what is possible, okay? The, they tell us what is possible if the rules stay the same. That's what the natural order tells us. They tell us what is possible if the rules stay the same. But miracles don't play by the rules. Simple definition of a miracle. If you're ever looking for just a really simple, in a nutshell, definition of a miracle. A miracle is when the one who made the rules changes them. A miracle is where the one who made the rules changes the rules. And that's what I want us to consider today. As, and really for the next few weeks, as we talk about the resurrection, uh, we face what we consider to be impossible decisions all the time. We're faced with impossible situations all the time. Cancer, losing our jobs, relationship problems that just can't be fixed. Life controlling issues that have gripped our lives that we've tried and we've tried and we've tried, but we can't get past it and our life continues to be dominated by a substance or a habit or something in our lives. And there are plenty of impossible situations 
that we unfortunately just resign ourselves to. Well, that's just the way it is. I just have to deal with this. And we give up and we say that, that nothing I do will change this. And if that is your solution, you doing more and you trying harder, you may be right. Nothing you do will change this. But I want you to stop for a second this morning and consider this. Would the situation that you are facing with what you're going through, with what you're dealing with, would it still be impossible if the one who made the rules changed them? Would it still be impossible for you to face if the one who established everything that is and designed the rules to play out a certain way said, no, it's going to change in this moment. You see, there comes a moment in time where the impossible meets the God who decides what impossible is and something has to give. And I promise you that God is not the one who's going to move in those instances. And there are moments where God decides to change the rules, to flip nature on its head and do things differently in your life, to do things differently in your circumstances, in your finances, to do things differently in your family, because that's what God does. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's time to reconsider what is impossible in your life. And the resurrection causes us to do that. It causes us to reconsider, to rethink everything that has to do with what is possible and what is impossible. Because if the Son of God can come back from the dead, if he can resurrect after three days, it changes literally everything. We're going to look at an impossible scenario from the Bible today. But before we do that, I want you to think about a good person that you know personally. I mean, they are a really, really good person. I mean, the best person that you know, they treat other people well, uh, they're generous, all the different things that we associate with good people. You know, if you had to rank them among all the people that you know, you know, or you can think of, there's Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, and then there's this person. Who, who, is that, who would that person be in your life? What have they done to earn that title coming from you? Who have they helped? How do they treat other people? And what if I told you, as good as they are, as well as they behave, as good as the list of things that they've accomplished is, they're still not good enough. They're not there. They haven't arrived. And we're going to look at a story today that kind of illustrates that. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples are hanging out with Jesus and they're teaching around the Judean countryside. And they wrap up their teaching session and are beginning to head to Jerusalem. And his final trip to Jerusalem, as he's headed there to be handed over to the chief priests and eventually crucified, executed uh, by the Roman authorities. And as they gather their things and they're headed in the direction of Jerusalem, a man comes running up to them. And he's been running away as he's trying to catch his breath, you know, trying to catch Jesus before he leaves. He's panting hard, and he drops to his knees in front of the rabbi that has turned the religious world on its head. Jesus' teaching is paradigm shifting. Everybody's rethinking everything based on the teaching of Jesus. He has come on the scene and disrupted the status quo. And this man kneels at the feet of Jesus, and he looks up at Jesus, and he asks this question, good teacher, must... 
excuse me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to get to heaven? Please tell me, because you're changing everything. Your teaching is, is just revolutionary, and I want to hear it from your mouth. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the standard Jewish answer, okay? Obey the law. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, honor your parents. He kind of runs down the laundry list of what the Jewish law says you should do to honor God and to please God. And this guy gives an answer that is pretty spectacular. It's kind of shocking, actually. This is what he says in Mark 10, verse 20. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. What? I mean, even this guy is one of the most incredible people who has ever walked the earth, or he's telling a whopper of a lie right here. One of the two is true, but he says, I have obeyed every one of those commands since I was little. But in either case, we find out it doesn't matter because scripture tells us that Jesus was moved by this guy. I mean, his heart broke for him, that he looked at him with genuine love in his heart, and this is how he responds. Verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the man's head just drops. And he pauses there for a few seconds. And everyone in the crowd around who's been watching this scene unfold is just almost holding their breath, waiting to see what he's going to do. They're really curious because this guy is known. He's got a reputation. He's the wealthiest man around. And some of them in the crowd are probably already thinking to themselves, hey, I'm poor. Maybe I'm the beneficiary here. Maybe he's going to get up and say, hey, here, you want everything I've got? It's yours. And the man climbs slowly to his feet with his head still down. He turns and he walks away. And Jesus uses this rejection because that's really ultimately what this man did is he rejected Jesus. Jesus had told him what he needs to do. Give your money away because it's got a hold on your life. Obviously, or the man would have been willing to give it up. Give your money away and come and follow me. And he rejected Jesus. And Jesus turns it into a teachable moment for his disciples. And he tells them it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives them a famous, famous Jesusism. Okay, this is one of those sayings of Jesus that a lot of people know, even who don't know the Bible. And he says, it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, we hear that, and we kind of listen to that, and a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. I mean, I have, I have trouble getting thread through the eye of a needle, but that's because I have 48-year-old eyes and not long enough arms to pull it off. But, you know, he's t telling this, and we think, okay, how is a camel going to get through the eye of a needle? That's, that's impossible. But let me give you a little bit of an explanation here to understand Jesus' phrasing a little better, to really understand what Jesus is saying you need to put yourselves in the shoes of a first century listener, okay? And 
if there's a lot of biblical commentators who believe that what Jesus is referring is referring to something uh, in Jerusalem and in other larger cities of the time that there was something known as the Needle Gate. And the Needle Gate was a very narrow and very low and small gate that was easily defended. It was off to the side of the main gate into the city. And this needle gate would be there and it was, it was smaller because that would make it easily defendable so they could leave it open for after hours entrance into the city without leaving the city open to attack at its main gate. So they would close the main gate and bar that. And if somebody needed to come through after dark or after they had closed the main gate, they would come through the needle gate uh, to the side of it. Now, the main gate was designed for trade. It was designed for carts. It was designed for camels uh, to walk through, but not the needle gate. It was virtually impossible for a camel to walk through this smaller gate, let alone a camel that is loaded up with all of its you know, trade goods and, and somebody riding it. And the point of the image was that camels had to be unloaded. They had to be unburdened of everything they were carrying before they could possibly fit through. And even then, it was dicey. In other words, it's not the rich man as an individual, just as a person, but the rich man with all of his trappings and all of his baggage who can't enter into the kingdom. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that just helps you get a better understanding of what Jesus was referring to when he made this statement. But here Jesus is separating himself from every other rabbi of the time period. Every other rabbi taught that rich people were blessed by God and were the most likely candidates for heaven because they were highly favored because of their wealth. God had obviously smiled upon them. He looked upon them with favor and they would be the first to be welcomed into heaven. Their wealth was proof of God's blessing on their lives. And the disciples were blown away and were a little nervous at this statement that Jesus had just made. Mark 10 says the disciples were astounded then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Because as I just mentioned, they had been taught by all the previous rabbis on the scene that the wealthy were the first to be welcomed in. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. And we'll come back to that verse because Jesus lays out here what I've asked you to think about up front today. What if there was no such thing as an impossibility? Because all it would take was for the one who made the rules to change them. And that happened at the resurrection. The rules were changed. And here's what you're going to understand as we continue to unpack this today. The rules were changed not just for that moment, just to bring Jesus back to life, but the fundamental rules of everything having to do with our relationship with God were changed in that moment. More on that in a few minutes. But the first thing we need to understand from this story of Jesus and the rich man is this. There is no such thing as good enough. There's no such thing as good enough. The disciples are floored because they saw this righteous man in their eyes walk away 
sad. And hear Jesus say he basically has no chance. Well, here's the thing. Did he have no chance before he came to Jesus? Or did he have no chance after he walked away? You see, my understanding of this passage, and we don't know because we don't know the man's thoughts, we don't know his heart. He came to Jesus genuinely wanting the truth. He wasn't like the Pharisees who were trying to trap Jesus. He wasn't like, you know, the teachers of the law who just wanted to, to stick it to Jesus and, and get him to say something that would, that would uh, damage his reputation amongst the people. No, he genuinely wanted to know. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, and right there, this is the most important moment in this man's entire life, is as he's on his knees before Jesus, and he has to make a decision in that moment. Will I obey? Will I unburden myself of all of these things, all this stuff, all this wealth that seems pretty important to most people, but in light of eternity matters nothing. Will I lay that down and follow this man? And he got up and walked away. And I think that's when it became impossible, not because he was wealthy, but because he chose his wealth over Jesus. The disciples are floored though, and they're wondering if he's not good enough, who's kept all these commandments since he was little, what is good enough? I mean, how do I earn my spot in heaven if he can't? That's what they're thinking. And the mindset is no different today. There are people who spend their entire lives trying to be a good person, trying to do the right thing. They make themselves sick trying to do the right things and say the right things and live the perfect life to try and please God. And you could live the most perfect life that you could, that you can think of, and the bottom line is you'd still end up in hell, separated from God for all eternity. And how do I know that? Romans 3.23 tells us that. For everyone, all people, everyone who has ever lived, ever will live, everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. It's not your standard of goodness. It's not mine. It's not theirs or this, that, and the other guy. It is God's standard. And God's standard is purity, holiness, perfection. God has nothing in him that is not perfect. That's the standard. And there's no way we can measure up to that. And Romans 6.23 follows up on that and says, for the wages of sin is death. What we earn when you go and you work at a job, you get a wage for that. You earn something in transaction for your employment there, for the work that you put in. And the wages of sin, for the work we put in sinning, what we earn from that is death. Then you flip it around and it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want you, to, the key language there is the free gift of God. You earn death through your sin, but you don't earn eternal life. You can't work for that. You can't make yourself good enough. No matter how sick you make yourself trying to do the right thing, you'll never measure up to that. But the free gift, what he offers freely without you having to do anything to make yourself good enough, to earn it, to merit it, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So here's the bad news. We're all separated from God because of our mistakes, because of our sin. And for that, God in his, per his perfection and his holiness has to punish sin. 
It's in his nature. He has to punish sin. He's going to eliminate sin once and for all at the end of time. Sin will be destroyed. And you can't separate sin from who we are. That's in our nature. We have a sinful nature. And at the time this narrative in Mark's gospel is taking place, for thousands of years, people had been trying to make things right between them and God. They'd performed all sorts of rituals and made all sorts of sacrifices to allow their sins to be forgiven. But it was imperfect and it still couldn't get the job done. So what did God do? God changed the rules. God changed the rules for us. And that is what the resurrection is. It is the way that God changed the rules for you and me. The resurrection is the way through which God changed the rules for you and for me. When Jesus left heaven, he came to earth and he sacrificed himself for us. Everything changed. The cross and the empty tomb changed everything. The Bible we have is divided into two parts uh, called the Old Testament and the New Testament. But do you know what testament means? Another word for testament is covenant. So we could call our Bible the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It means agreement. A covenant is an agreement. That's why we refer to marriage as a covenant relationship. It's an agreement between two people. And this was a covenant before Jesus, before Jesus came, we had one way of relating to and trying to make things right between us and God. And it wasn't good. It was imperfect and it wasn't enough. But now we're living on the other side of Jesus coming. We're living in a post-resurrection reality. And we live in a reality where everything has changed. We live in the New Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement that God has made with us. Why is the re resurrection so significant? Why is it that important? Well, first of all, it's because Jesus was dead and now he's not. Guys, that's pretty significant in and of itself. Jesus was dead. Three days later, he's alive. That's amazingly significant. But we're talking about changing the rules. And when we talk about that, this was a big one. God changed the rules here and Jesus came back to life. And if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus had done the same for others. During his ministry, Jesus had raised people from death back to life. He brought people back to life who had already died. So why was Jesus any different than those stories that we've already read about? It's because every one of those people Jesus brought back to life had one thing in common. They still died. They eventually died. Even though God changed the rules and brought them back to life because there was a purpose to serve in bringing them back to life, Jesus used them uh, to fulfill his purposes. Every one of them eventually died again. But with Jesus, everything was different with Jesus. He came back to life. He spent 40 days after that teaching, investing in his disciples and getting them ready to take the baton and run with it from that point forward. And then he was taken into heaven with many of his followers standing there, staring up into the sky with their mouths open, watching Jesus head back into heaven. And he's still alive today. 
That's the difference. You want to know why the resurrection is such a big deal? Why it enables us to reconsider what impossible looks like? It's because not only was Jesus alive three days after his crucifixion, but he's still alive today. He's alive and he's here. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Jesus is here. That's a reason to get excited, Trilogy, that Jesus is here with us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you could be confident we are more than conquerors, the Bible teaches, because Jesus is alive. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have a reason to get excited too. Why? Because you have the same opportunity to get things right between you and God. You see, Jesus died for a reason. He just he didn't die just because he thought it could be a good idea. He died for a reason. God changed the rules for a reason. Jesus came back to life for a reason. And you are that reason. You are the reason Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. And that's not a fun thought. That should give every one of us pause as we think about the fact that we put him there. But we are also the reason that Jesus was resurrected because God was changing the rules, not just in raising Jesus from the dead, but also in how our sin could be dealt with. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus didn't just go to the cross. God miraculously transferred the sin of the entire world to Jesus while he was on that cross. Your sin, my sin, the disciples' sin, my future grandchildren's sin, everybody's sin was on Jesus on that cross. All of it went to the cross with him. We were dead. We were condemned. We had no chance. We could not make things right. But here's what happened 2,000 years ago. The resurrection solved an impossible problem by paying an impossible price. The resurrection solved an impossible problem by paying an impossible price. So what does this mean for you? It means that before we end our service today, you can get things square between you and God. You don't have to get your act together first. You don't have to try to be worthy. You don't have to do enough good stuff. There's no mandatory waiting period. Right now, this morning, you can make things right. You can be forgiven. You can be free from the penalty God's justice demands for your sin. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We didn't have like this path that had started to turn in the right direction first. No, Jesus came to die for us while we were still buried in our sin. Because some of you have known for a long time that Jesus is the answer. But you've continued to live as if you were the answer. You, you had to make it right. You had to figure it out. You had to earn your way into heaven. You don't have a good, healthy understanding of the grace of God because you've got this workspace mindset. And we need to flip that over on its head because instead of saying, I need to do enough good things so God will be pleased with me, we need to have the mindset, I can do all these good things because God is pleased with me through Christ. Now all these good things can flow out of my life. 
but you don't have to make yourself acceptable to God. Jesus did that. And God is calling you saying it's time to stop performing and time to accept his love. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to the most amazing act of love the world has ever known. And for some reason, all these years, even though you've known Jesus was the answer, you've lived as if you were the answer. And I want to give you the opportunity to make things right before we finish today. But you may be saying, and those of you who have already made the decision to accept God's love and follow in the path Jesus showed to us to go, I mean, you're, you're living on that path. You might be saying as well, but my life is a mess. I'm, I'm facing some other impossible situations right now. I'm facing stuff I don't know how to deal with, things that are overwhelming me. I am drowning here in the middle of what I'm facing. And the resurrection shows us that the same power that raised Christ from the dead can help us to change how we think about those impossible situations that we're facing in our lives now. And here's what I want you to see. When the disciples watched Jesus die on the cross, okay, they watched him go. The leader that they had followed for years now gave his life on the cross. And when they watched him die, they put him in that tomb and there were three days between his death and his resurrection. Three days to consider their circumstances, their new reality. What were they thinking? They were thinking, it's over. They were thinking, we're doomed. They were thinking, we thought he was the answer. We thought he was the Messiah. There's no hope. It was the darkest moment of their lives because they had hitched their wagon to the wrong horse. Let me read this to you in Luke 24. This is, uh, this is what some of the disciples who uh, were kind of in that state had said. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Guys, their hope was shattered. It was gone. But here's what I want you to see. The impossible was already happening when everything looked its darkest. The impossible was already happening. We call it Good Friday, the Friday before Easter Sunday, when we remember Jesus' death on the cross, right? But we have 2,000 years of hindsight looking back on that that help us to see that it was a necessary and even a good thing for us for Jesus to go to the cross. The disciples didn't have that. They were dejected, they felt lost, but God had already put the impossible into motion. It was already happening. They just couldn't see it. Do you know who it was that the disciples were talking to just now? That statement that I just read, yeah, with Jesus, that all these things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, he was handed over, he was crucified, we had hoped he was the Messiah, all these things. Do you know who they were talking to? when they were dejectedly complaining about the death of Jesus, they were talking to the resurrected Jesus. He had already been raised back to life. His true identity was hidden from them as, they, as he walked along the road with them. And the answer to their prayers was right in front of them. It was walking next to them on the road and they didn't know it. Some of you are going through an impossible situation right now. You're carrying an impossible load right now. 
You can't see how it could possibly change. You're lost, you're alone, you feel like God has abandoned you, but I want you to remember this morning, this, this morning as we talk about the resurrection, that there would be no empty tomb without the cross. There would be no empty tomb without the cross. And the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your circumstances. He's already moving. The impossible could already be happening in your life. Trust God, turn towards and run to him. Not away from him because he's right there with you. He's walking alongside you. And for those of you who are, you are living proof of the resurrection, you're loving life right now, you're loving Jesus right now, you're enjoying the fruit of that rules-changing moment 2,000 years ago, you're living in his will and following his plans and his purposes for your life, for you, I want to remind you that the impossible story needs to be told. The impossible story needs to be told. We live in a world where people get lost in impossible circumstances every single day. And they have no hope. They don't know where to turn. And the Bible tells an amazing story of how God changed the rules and made the impossible possible. And you are that story. You are living proof of that story being reality in our world. When the two Marys uh, discovered the empty tomb after the resurrection, they were overwhelmed by the news that Jesus was alive. And here's what the Bible tells us happened. Matthew 28, the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. Their first response was to go and tell someone. Don't keep this incredible story to yourself. Don't be selfish with what God has given you. Tell someone. They rushed to share the story. Why? Because it is the story. God has changed the rules for all time. We can be forgiven. God wants to set us free. That is a story that needs to be told. And it's your responsibility to share it. And I'm going to pray for you as we wrap up today. That God would give you the boldness you need to tell this story again and again and again. And as we end this morning, I want to read Mark 10 again and remind us of what God has now made possible. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. The resurrection tells us everything we need to know. And as we close in prayer, I told you earlier that if you didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, that I would give you that chance this morning. And you may be sitting here listening to this message, and maybe you've been a part of Trilogy for a while, but you've never crossed that line of faith. You've never made that decision to put your trust in him, to get things right between you and God. And that time is right now. God has made a way for the impossible to become possible. Your part in it, accept it. Not earn it, not become worthy of it, just receive the gift that God is offering you. The gift of forgiveness, the gift of love, that gift that was won for you 2,000 years ago in an empty tomb. For those of you who have, maybe you made the decision to follow Jesus a while ago, but you've never been able to break free of that mindset of, I've got to earn his love. I'm going to pray for you today that you would feel the freedom that comes from the knowledge that God loves you regardless and that you can live into that freedom and begin to serve him out of that freedom and not out of this sense of burden or obligation. Because Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And that's how God wants you to live.
And finally, I'm going to pray for all of us that we will begin to share the story, tell the story of what God has done. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, as we conclude this message today, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. This game-changing, rules-changing, rules-breaking moment 2,000 years ago when everything became different. And God, we thank you for changing the rules for us. Lord, I pray for those who are hearing this message today and something clicked inside of them and they're sitting here saying, I need to make things right with God. I want to accept that gift that he's offering me, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of salvation. And Lord, I pray that as they are sitting there and they just whisper a prayer, God, I receive that gift. God, I want everything you have for me and I want to follow you. I'm going to lay aside who I have been and I want to live into the person that you have created me to become and I want to follow you every step of the way. Forgive me. As they pray that and just whisper that prayer, God, would you forgive them and radically transform their heart right now? Make them a new person. God, I pray for those who maybe have made that decision a ways back, but God, they've been living under this burden of performance-based faith where they feel like they have to prove themselves or they have to make themselves worthy of you every single day. God, I pray that you would set them free of that and help them to live with a, a, a biblical and healthy understanding of grace. God, that you love us not because of, but you love us through Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help those who have been trapped in that performance-based mindset of how they can make you happy or earn your affection. God, set them free from that. And God, let their good works and let the things that they do that honor you flow out of a right relationship with you. And then God, I pray for all of us that you would help us, God, to tell this story every opportunity we get, that God, we would be sharing the story of how God changed the rules in our lives, how you set us free. And God, now we have the freedom to follow you. God, I pray that you'd be with us this week and let us live in the reality of the resurrection, that rules-breaking moment that God continues through to today. God, let us live in that. And God, let the power of the resurrection be at work in our lives. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.